0: Man, good evening, everyone. Good evening. Good so, welcome to something new we're trying. Um, I, had for a long time, thought it would be great to have a chance to have a time where I know you guys have questions, and not every Bible study has a fair chance at addressing those questions because I don't always know what they are. And so, what was really interesting is we decided when we meet in this building, which is on occasion maybe once a quarter, is about we would have the time for a question and answer. So tonight, I'm answering your questions. Now, we are not going to do an open question night where we pass the mic around and let you guys ask whatever you would like. I've been through those before, and though, I, though they're fine and you can handle them, what ends up happening is you fall back, it's like Vegas in here, what's going on? <laughs> you end up falling back on rote answers And it just kind of, it doesn't challenge me at all. (laughs) And it may not challenge you much. So what we did is you guys submitted questions over the last few weeks. I selected at first, uh, well, I liked most, like almost all of them. Then I trimmed it down to seven. And then I'm like, I don't even know if I can get through five. So we'll see how that goes. Um, So I've prepared answers for you. What we're going to do is we're going to leave, God willing, five minutes open at the end. In which you can ask a follow-up question on what has been said. Understand? So that's not a time to like ask me what my favorite color is, although that's not very intimidating at all. But uh, that's a hard one, though. <laughs> but to ask, well, what did you mean by that answer? Or it kind of spawned off on the same subject, another thought. All right. So we're looking for follow-up questions at the end. Understood? <coughs> Are we all on the same page? Uh-huh. So before we get going, um, why this? Um, when I was young, I used to think Q&A times were like a chance to show off how much I know. And so you loved like, on the spot things. You're like, oh, yeah, I can do that on the spot. and like Whatever. Like, it, just was, it was dumb because like, nobody really cared. Um, now my goal with questions is I love it when people ask questions because it puts both of us to the test you don't actually learn until you ask. There's, there's this old joke about how there's the bumper sticker, Jesus saves, and the atheist asks, I'm sorry, the, the bumper sticker says, Jesus is the answer, and the atheist asks, well, what was the question? And I feel like often we go to Bible study and we get answers and answers, but we actually never had a question, so it's not enforcing anything. And the way the Jews learned, as a rabbi would choose his disciples, he would ask them question after question, and they were required to not give an answer, like we do in our American schools, but to answer his question with a question that showed he had further knowledge of the question he asked. So then the rabbi can engage in another question and actually happen as they spiral deeper into the subject than you would get with just a simple, give me the answers. <laughs> so I believe that questions are pertinent and therefore I think it's good to have a space where we can actually think hey this will happen again let me jot this question down and give it to the pastor and just writing questions down is a good thing uh, Jonathan Edwards is considered the greatest theologian in America that's ever seen he's responsible for producing the great awakening the second great awakening in America he's the one known for the sermons sinners in the hands of an angry God Jonathan Edwards made several vows to himself as a young lad, one of which was, I will never fail to write down a question and then seek the answer out. He made that commit every question he had, write it down and seek it out, even if it took him all his life. So, all that to say, questions are good. I said they challenge both of us. So they challenge you to continue to think more critically and outside the box. They challenge me because... Well, what happens with questions is you kind of get in your agenda mode, like kind of like, these are the things I'm comfortable saying, and then a question comes up, and you're like, well, that wasn't what I was looking for. And so then it causes me to have to kind of go around another way and to think, well, what are you guys thinking? Oh, that's that's what's on your mind. That's what you wonder. So it kind of works both ways. So tonight, you're going to hear some things that I probably would never say in a message, but the question prompted it, so here it is. Um, Also, I'm probably one of the worst question answers of all time. Uh, because I don't really get straight you can ask my students, I don't actually get straight to an answer, I don't give them a straight answer and I don't get straight to an answer I kind of just circle around the subject and say well there you go both sides win. So um, that's sort of how I am and I'm a little frustrating that way but I think I also have a peacemake. I'm a peacemaker at heart so I like to reconcile views so expect a little bit of that. Uh, My goal sometimes is to make you think more than to make you say, I know everything. (laughs) That would be a lot different. Anyways, okay. Okay, let's go to the first question, shall we? Yeah, can we actually have the lights on a little brighter? I think it's tough for some people. (laughs) Okay, so per the submitted questions, I decided to select a few varieties. Some that were textual questions. In other words, what does this verse mean? That's this is an example of it. Others that are <laughs> others that are contextual questions. In other words, cultural questions. So, where they ask, well, why did people do this back then? And then questions that are theological questions, the ones that wrestle with those concepts of God. And then finally, practical questions, which are about how do I simply live as a Christian? So I chose one from each of those fields. So let's go with this one we have right now. Um, The question, what does it mean to take God's name in vain? So this question refers... To the third commandment in the Ten Commandments. And if your Bibles are handy and you want to look at it, it's in Exodus 20, verse 7. Exodus 20, verse 7. And there you read, it's the third of the Ten Commandments You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, I'm not sure the motive of this person's question, but I know growing up with youth pastors, and I was a youth group kid, I know that this verse was used an awful lot to say, you cannot cuss. You cannot say those four-letter words. You cannot throw God's name in a swear phrase. Because the third commandment says... Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. However, and I suspect the Oscars may be on this track. This isn't actually what the commandment is saying. This is how we justify things we don't like. We don't like cussing, so the third commandment applies to that. This not taking the Lord God's name in vain. What It meant to take someone's name in vain back in the day... That's really embarrassing. It's God. He's out there. He's probably looking for it. It's a worship leader, ladies and gentlemen. Maybe uh, is calling you. It's in the wrong key. That was the off switch. We all know where it is now. (laughs) He just took the Lord's name in vain, too. Okay. So here's what it, it deals with, taking the Lord's name in vain. So the second commandment talks about thou shalt not make carved images. The third commandment says, don't take the Lord's name in vain. They're actually following upon one another. In ancient times, to carve an image of your God was to manipulate your God. The reason they had idols was so that they could give offerings to that deity to appease it in order to get something back from the deity. What did they want back? Well, most deities were in control of different parts of nature. So if you had the wine god or goddess, then you would give appeasement to that god or goddess so that you could have a good, plentiful harvest of grapes so that you could have much much wine. Um, Another thing that you would do with those gods is... um, you would, well, the reason paganism had a lot of sexual sins is because when you wanted the land to be fertile, you would do that with human beings, do fertility, and then it would be God make the land spring forth with offspring. And so they would do these things to manipulate their gods. So the second commandment actually saying, don't manipulate Yahweh, your God. He does what he wants. You don't get to control what he does by sort of pulling the right strings on him. The third commandment then goes in a little bit off of that and says, also, don't just manipulate my image, but don't manipulate my name. Now, this would apply to how you can manipulate other people. Because what would happen is you could use your deity's name in a curse upon a people and make them, because of the deity's power, you vote the deity's power and make these people suffer and be cursed. And is saying, you shall never use my name to curse other people, to manipulate other people. So, um, we often think that this is just... Don't cuss. Now, I'm not saying cussing is okay. But the Bible just doesn't actually say anywhere, Thou shalt not say these lists of words. It just doesn't say that. What it does say is in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So Paul writes in Ephesians, Look, I don't know about this cussing thing, but don't be a cutter. Don't cut people down with your words. And then in Philippians, it gets even better, where Paul says, Philippians 2:14, "Do all things without complaining or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Do all things without complaining. We know that when Israel was in the wilderness following Moses, they were complaining brats. Nothing was good enough. They didn't have food, so God gave them food. Their food wasn't good enough. Then he gave them meat because they wanted meat. Then it's coming out of their nostrils, and they're complaining. And then they're complaining against Moses. And in Numbers 11, the complaining got so bad at one time, it said that God just sent fire and burned up those that were complaining in the camp. And you get the point when you read those narratives about the wilderness wanderings that they were a complaining people and that God and Moses had a very hard time with complaining people. Then Moses, used, uh, sorry, Paul uses the same word as used there of complaining in the New Testament. And he says, look, don't be like them and don't complain. Christians in this generation ought to speak positively and with reinforcement. And you know, I can resonate with this. I can handle, now I know we all have different levels of sensitivity, but I can handle someone cussing. I may not like it, but I can handle it. But when somebody complains, that is a slow rot at your soul. And it slowly brings you down as it goes on and on. Cussing, I can just keep going, you're so dumb, get a better vocabulary. (laughs) But complaining? For crying out loud, don't bring us all down with you. So the Bible, before it has any concern with cussing, it says don't cut people down, don't complain. That really is what we should be aiming for. So, um, going back to taking the Lord God's name in vain, using his name to manipulate others. So the first church I worked for, the pastor there, um, I was an intern, and so I was still kind of finding my niche in life and my niche in ministry. And, you know, I was doing different things. And I felt real led to leave his church to go to school for pastoralship and for teaching. And when I was, I wasn't sure what to do. You know, my parents were in Texas. I was, I was living on my own first time in my life, just out of high school. And I'm just like, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I did the logical thing. I went and confided with my pastor. Hey, I need counsel. I need guidance. And so what he does is he listens to me and he proceeds to tell me his will for me, but says that it's God's will. Mm -hmm. Now, I sort of sense this as he's talking to me, that he didn't really care about me. He cared about what I could offer to his church. But it really confirmed it when at the end of many conversations, he finally, he seemed a little frustrated that I was even thinking of leaving. Because, you know, the conversations go on, he's getting a little more frustrated. He finally says... I have the gift of discernment, and I know that you're supposed to be here. Now, there he did the classic using God's name in vain. God told me that this is what he wants from you. Really? God told me you're my future spouse. <laughs> if you give extra, God will bless you. How many of you heard of that promise before? It's a manipulation tactic to get you to give more. Is this using God's name in vain? You're emptying its power with empty promises and phrases. Number two, question number two. Thank you. (laughs) I'll be here all night. No, I'm just kidding. Um, right. question number two. Why are women not required to wear a head covering when wearing one was commanded in the New Testament? This question comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. It's a rather lengthy passage. But that's where it comes from if you want to kind of dawdle around it right now. For t- sake of time, I'm going to read you the relevant passages that talk about head coverings. So, verses 5 and 6, 1 Corinthians 11, 5 and 6. Paul, writing to this very dysfunctional church family in Cor- Corinth, says, eleven five. 5. But every wife or woman—it's also it can be translated wife or woman—it's not specific. So every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife were not cove, uh, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short but since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head let her cover her head <laughs> so paul tells the corinthians i want women to have their heads covered even in the church service even when they're praying so why in the world would he be commanding them to cover their heads and why in the world are yep 100% of the women tonight sinning <laughs> or are they <laughs> So, <laughs> Okay, so two interpretations can apply here. First, an uncovered head would have been very scandalous back in the Roman Empire and New Testament times. Common dress code, and all cultures have a common dress code, a sort of set of unspoken expectations of what people should wear and look like. So the unspoken common dress code for women was that they covered their heads. That's just what they did. The ones who did not cover their heads were the ones on the corner of the street in the red light district. So an uncovered head spoke of association with a very different crowd of women. And Paul, in the church, we were gathering that women were feeling a freedom to take their head coverings off. Likely because his message was, in Christ, men and women are equal. And so the woman, like, finally, we can take these things off and be like the men. But then Paul says, wait a minute. In Corinth, that means something entirely different. So I want you not to be associated. I don't want the rumor of us, the small minority in the whole city of Corinth going around. Oh, yeah, there's this cool new club over there at St. Paul's house. Let's go check it out. Like Paul didn't want that going around the city. The women and the church were to be different. So he asked them to keep their heads covered. Another possible interpretation is that there was an exception to women who would take their head coverings off and would not be considered prostitutes. They were the very wealthy women. Of course, you would never confuse a prostitute with a very wealthy woman. So they had the freedom to take their head coverings off, and the reason they did was to show off their fancy new hairdos. Which was actually a big deal in the Roman Empire. Everyone wanted to dress men like the Caesar did, the emperor, and the woman like his wife. They set the fashion trends. So the ones that were wealthy enough to keep up with the fashion trends would show off their wealth by showing off their fashion trend. So a wealthy woman would take her head covering off, show off her new hairdo, and what was very common then was to put gold in your hair and jewels. And so they would put in as much as their hair could hold up to show off their wealth. Well, Paul... He's dealing with this, this church in division where the poor and rich have a lot of squabbles. And he's saying, stop showing off your wealth if you're wealthy. There are some of your other sisters that can't live up to that standard and you're walking around smug like you own the place just because you have money. Paul's like, this is ridiculous. We are equal in Christ. We're going to live equal in Christ. Furthermore, can you imagine in a candlelight setting when the church usually met at nighttime, um, a candlelight setting and a woman walks in with her head covering off, immediately drawing attention. Not only that, but you've got all these gems in it and gold and silver and so forth. And the candlelight's flickering off of her head as she's walking walking across, fashionably late of course, down to the front row where the rich sat and pushed the poor towards the back, you would be a walking disco ball on your way in (laughs) while Paul was trying to teach them about Jesus. It's just ridiculous. So Paul's like, stop. Think a little bit. You are not Corinth, you're Christ's. So don't associate with Corinth, associate with Christ. So the reason we don't wear head coverings today is, I don't see any disco balls in here so that's a good start (laughs) and we don't associate an uncovered head with prostitution there would be other ways that that's associated so today it's not as much of a threat and every culture has its own customs and codes, our custom and code is not a covered head, in the Middle East it would be a covered head but not in the US so make it short, that's that Um, oh golly I have more to say on that I'm not going to by the way I do have a 15 page packet of my I I wrote this out so if I'm not covering everything in detail I may not get to every question so you can pick one of those up on your way out it's on the table there don't do it now because then you'll just read it and you'll miss everything because I'm far more funnier than when I write so just kidding alright so number three this is a practical question How critical is actually reading the Word every day, or the Bible? I mean, could you get the same benefit from a recorded sermon, for instance? Now, I'm unclear if this means, like, how important is it to read the Bible every single day, or if it means how important is it that I am personally reading the Bible on my own every day. I think it's the latter, The question is contrasting reading the Bible for myself versus hearing messages on podcasts on CD at church or even reading a book that gives you commentary on scripture. It's a good question because there is maybe 50-50 in a room like this. You have 50% that are capable of reading scripture on their own, 50% that really don't have a clue what it's doing so they rely heavily on sermons and teachers and books. Is that right or wrong? Well, This is where I'm in frustrating as a answer person (laughs) here's my answer is that we must 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 get scripture inside of us we have to get scripture inside of us I don't care how you get it inside of you but you need to get it inside of you and if reading it on your own is daunting and it's not getting inside of you because of that Do what it takes. Read a Christian book. Read a commentary. Listen to K-Wave. Pick up my lousy CDs. Do whatever you need to do to get scripture inside of you. The purpose of the Bible is to change the way we think, the way we see, and the way we live. And it does. I promise it does when you work on getting inside of you. Now, inside of you doesn't just mean it's on in the background while I'm doing whatever I'm doing. Um, I got headphones on but I'm watching Fox News I can watch the ticker as it goes while I'm listening to Chuck Smith I tried that in Bible college it wasn't very effective <laughs> that's not the idea It's but to let it actually get inside of you like where you can absorb it so for some people that's reading a lot at once some, or listening to a lot at once for some people it's a little bit at a time you just have to get it inside of you because the purpose of scripture again is to change the way you think, see and live and it does I want you to think about it like a language And it really is like this. You approach the Bible, and it's like a new language. You're like, oh, man. John 3.16 was cool, but I don't know about this Leviticus fella. Is he a fella? (laughs) I don't even know who he is. And these Corinth people, man, I thought my family had issues. Um, it, it can be a real strange language to get accustomed to and to try to read it and to try to understand it and you're like what in the world but like languages the more you get immersed in it the easier it becomes and the more you understand now how you get scripture into you might change with where you're at with God and frankly it probably should change if you're doing the exact same thing for 50 years you're probably not growing very much With your growth should come a new way of getting Scripture into you. It may not be, uh, I used to listen, now I read, or I used to read, now I listen. It may not be that dramatic of a change, but it might be their pace of it. How much do you read at a time? Do you journal, do you not? Do you pray over the Scriptures, or do you just pray separately from them? Like, there's different... Patterns and it should be changing as you get accustomed to the language. So, if you're someone who's reliant upon messages, upon me or somebody else interpreting Scripture, fantastic, stay there. You need a language guide. But if you're still there 10 years later, you gotta wonder, are you really learning the language? There should be an increasing familiarity with Scripture, and it does start to change what you think. Scripture starts to come to your head, different verses over different situations. It changes the way you see the world, you see people, you see their problems, because you're starting to understand the way God sees the world. And it changes the way you live, because anyone who disciplines themselves to a habit of sitting down with a book every single day or as many days as you can, that alone is a life change. And if you can do that, you can master a lot of other things in your life. But unfortunately, we're not willing to sit down and discipline one area, so we struggle with a bunch of other things. Very important to get it inside of us. I don't care how you do it, just get it inside of you. And seek to keep growing in it. Um, So here's a simple couple guidelines for it. Five of them. So whatever you do, read, listen, whatever. Do it consistently. Doesn't have to be every day, but make sure it's consistent. Me, realistically, since I've had kids, I'm more like a four times a week person. I used to be every morning, early in the morning. But it's different now. But it's consistent. Just keep it regular. Uh, Second, read consecutively. So don't just randomly pick a verse here and there. Like, um, Judas went and hung himself. Oh, that was uplifting. Get it? Uh, Next day... Jesus says, now go and do likewise. (laughs) God, is this a sign? Uh, Don't do that, okay? Some call, yeah. Consecutively, and you don't have to like go from Genesis to Revelation because man, you're going go to go through Genesis like this is awesome. Then you get Exodus, and you're going to give up. Um, but at least make sure like you're going through a book. Like just I'm going to do Ephesians, go through it. Oh, I'm going to do Revelation, go through it. But don't hop around because that doesn't actually develop anything. So consistently, consecutively, patiently read. Patiently reading's not a race. Get it inside of you. Be patient. Four. Read prayerfully. What you read should on prayer. If the Bible's talking about something that you're struggling with, just pray about it. That's what it's telling you to do. So just do it consistently, consecutively, patiently, prayerfully, and finally, willingly. Man, if this is just not happening for you yet, just give it time. Alright? Compelling someone to be in scripture is not a good thing. I've been there and I've seen it. It's not good to make them do it. So make sure you're doing it willingly. Alright, question number four. Are we predestined? Here we go, right? You knew it was coming. Or do we have free will? And by the way, there were two questions submitted in this format, so there you go. How to be in, right? Are we chosen or do we choose? Okay, so... Some of you have already checked out at the mention of the question. I get it, because we've all heard this one before. And we're all tired with where it goes. And it turns into endless debates. Some that get very heated. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I don't even know how to comprehend this. I feel like knowing more is making me want to know less. Stop now! Okay, My approach to this is going to be a little different. So let's just roll with it, okay? So come back so here's my short answer there is none but we benefit from knowing these two extreme views of God because whichever one you lean towards or even if you're in the middle it tells you a lot about who God is in your life and who you will be as a result it really does I'm going to give you a brief explanation of these two views and then this is going to be mostly testimonial so first the definitions the definitions Let's do the two sides. Those who say that we are predestined, that God chooses us, are called Calvinists. Can you say Calvinist? Calvinist. (laughs) Calvinist. They see that God is extremely sovereign and powerful. Basically, He's a micromanager of everything that's ever happened in history, including individual people's destinations and that he has selected a few choice individuals to go to heaven, and the rest he's kind of left to wallow about in their sin and die that way. Now, that sounds heartless, but Calvinism really prides itself on the fact that you do nothing. In fact, you didn't even want God. You were running away from him, wanting nothing to do with him, and it was he who tapped you on the shoulder and turned you around. And if he didn't do that, you would still be lost. So they take the whole you do no works very, very, very seriously. You literally did nothing. You didn't even believe. God made you believe. God did everything. And since God did everything, you can't be lost because God doesn't lose things. Very big God, very powerful. Now, the other side. You have... The free will people, the ones who believe we chose God, these are called Arminianism. Well, no, that's they're called Arminius. Can you say Arminius? Arminius. Okay, so you got Calvinism, the Calvinists, and you got Arminianism, Arminius. They are the free will folk. Um, so let's just take this, flip this around. They do not necessarily minimize God as some puny guy that can't save people. They see that he's active. They see that he's done the work of salvation. But they also realize that human beings are not compelled to respond to him if he chose you and destined to be dumb if he didn't choose you. They believe that God is revealing himself to everyone, and every individual human has the opportunity to respond to him. Now, along with this, because I'm the one that responded to God... They generally see that you can lose your salvation because if you responded to him, you could also unrespond to him, right? So here, in Calvinism, God is the main player. In Arminianism, man is the main player. God's done the work, but man has a huge responsibility to respond. Now, in a nutshell, most people fall into Arminianism which is really strange, because most teachers in seminaries and colleges are Calvinists. That most books are written by Calvinists. Most commentaries are written by Calvinists. Most famous preachers in history are Calvinists. Arminianism has a very small flag to, to- fly and horn to too. <laughs> Calvinism is like, God is awesome, he's glorious. Everyone's like, yeah, look at that. Everyone's like, big horn. And then the Arminianists are like, Choose God. <laughs> it was like, yeah, aren't you cute? But it's funny because we actually all kind of tend—it seems, especially in Calvin Chapel—we kind of tend to side towards Arminianism. I find that really interesting. Um, so there's your brief definitions. I've totally oversimplified that, but um, it'll work for now. Now, what you need to know real quick is the brief history of these two camps. Calvinism was started by John Calvin, who was a contemporary with John Luther, uh, Martin Luther, who started the Reformation. The reaction against Catholicism in the 16th century. So John Calvin was one of the most prolific writers about scripture. He was the boss on teaching scripture. And his disciples, after his death, formulated what they call the five points of Calvinism. Known by the acronym TULIP. Total depravity, you're totally lost. You can never be saved on your own. Um, Unconditional election. God makes the choices without any conditions. He can choose who he wants. L, limited atonement. Christ died only for those who were chosen. I, irresistible grace. That when God's grace comes to you, you cannot resist it. Because he gave it to you, you're going to accept it and then P, the perseverance of the saints, that only those who persevere to the end are the truly chosen ones. That's basically the five points in a nutshell. So they, they formulate those and put those out. Well, in, in, in Denmark, the Dutch have a totally different idea about this, and they don't like this at all. So this teacher named Arminius, uh, he has his disciples, and they come out with their counter five points, which basically counter all five of those in the opposite direction. So now what we actually have here is Calvinism is a reaction to 16th century so it's a reaction it's not even necessarily organically produced it's a reaction and then Arminianism is a reaction to that reaction (laughs) so what we're dealing with we basically pit beliefs down to you're on this side or you're on this side and we're dealing with two reactions so this is what extremes look like extremes are always working off of each other reacting to each other trying to outdo each other Um, personally balance might be a little bit better so here's my practical advice both of these views have their problems both of them have their strong points so what I've always told students when this comes up in classes it's usually more in the college setting I usually tell them okay whatever you believe I really don't care on both those camps both of them have their strong points but preach like a Calvinist and disciple like an Arminiist. And here's why. If Calvinism believes that God has already selected those who will be saved, and the rest just won't, it frees the one sharing Jesus with somebody else from an immense responsibility. Their soul is not in my hands and how I present the gospel to them, or preaching. I don't have to care what you think about me, because God has already wakened up the ears of those who are his, and what I say, they're going to say right on. And the ones that reject, they simply weren't chosen. It's nothing personal. Calvinism actually is incredibly liberating when it comes to the gospel. This is why, and I honestly don't know why people say this, it's usually people who are not Calvinists say, Calvinists don't evangelize, because if God's already picked everyone, why evangelize? (laughs) That is just not true. The most evangelistic people I've ever known are Calvinists. They are incredibly evangelistic. They care about the gospel. They want people saved. In fact, they love the gospel more than most Christians I know. They're almost obnoxiously obsessed with it. Calvinists are also those that will go deepest in the scriptures, which is why usually universities produce Calvinists, because they're very heady people. And you might have talked to one before, and you realize this very much. And you're like, yeah, they turn me off because everything is intellectual to them. But this is the great gift of Calvinists and why people like Charles Spurgeon and Jonathan Edwards and, well, of course, John Calvin and even Martin Luther, to a degree. They're all Calvinists because, or they're all great heroes of the faith because they were fearless in their presentation. Now, disciple each other like an Arminius. What does that mean? We have to, on a day-to-day basis, when we're dealing with each other's struggles and counseling each other and giving advice and walking with each other through life, we have to realize that everything comes down to the free will choice you have in the moment right now. And it's horrible counsel to tell someone, well, just wait till God does it because, you know, that sin will be broken as soon as God chooses to deliver you. That's horrible advice. (laughs) We have power to choose right now. And you've heard this in our Genesis teaching. God gave us dominion over creation. You have power right now to make the choices that are making you who you are. And in discipleship, we have to let people know. You choose whether you're reading scripture. You choose whether you're you're praying. You choose whether you're choosing that sin or not. It's all a choice. Because one of the biggest problems in our lack of maturity, the thing that holds us back from maturing in Christ, is victimization. It's the mentality in which we blame circumstances or the behavior or things that other people said for our actions. Well, they did that, so I did this. Oh, you had no choice? You mean they made you do it? Like if they do that every time, you're always going to, let's just go back to cussing. You're going to cuss them out? I mean, really, no choice. But we talk like this all the time. We blame. We give our power away. We need to be reminded constantly, you have power. Start using it to make good choices. So that's the advice. And here's my testimony a little bit in a nutshell. In my mid-twenties, when I got very serious about the Bible, I'd been teaching it for some time, but I was basically imitating John Corson, my favorites. Um, it was so bad. I, I mean literally I would just tell the corny jokes he tells and everything. Yeah, things changed. Um, it was bad, but then I started to like understand like the language thing of the Bible got a little easier for me, and I began to like dig in deeper, and that's when I met a certain class of Calvinists, and I began to think, "What? These people are brilliant. Wow, their God is beautiful, like he's so big he's so in charge, he's boss man I like this God and so I went full blown in that direction You know, I adored, I literally, I read everything I could. I wasn't a very big reader then, but I listened to every sermon I could, like always listening to the sermons of John Piper. You've probably heard of him before because he's a well-known author and speaker. He's a full-blown Calvinist to the point he tries to convert you to Calvinism. And he almost had me. I was like, yep, this is looking really good, but I'm a Calvary Chapel person, so, you know, I'm a closet Calvinist. (laughs) It's the secret to becoming a teacher, I guess. (laughs) just kidding um, now like I've already praised their strong points so I'm not going to go back into that but basically I saw their strong points I'm like what's not to love man they're awesome well there's that part about personal responsibility that wasn't going so awesome and while I'm not entirely sure that Calvinism was to blame for my passive reaction to life I'm not totally sure that it was innocent either As I was maturing as a man, as a husband, as a Christian, there were things that really needed to be fixed up in my life. And I was hurting people because they weren't getting fixed up. I wasn't maturing properly. And the whole attitude was, yeah, but I'm praying, I'm reading the scriptures, I go to church, I'm a pastor for crying out loud. Um, And the whole thing of it's God's job to do it. God's got to change me. And that's true, but my attitude was wrong. We can't just keep cruising through life waiting for God to intervene and do something. When the Israelites took the Ark of the Covenant into the Promised Land, and the Jordan River was standing in the way, that thing did not part until the priests put their foot in the water. Although the first time at the Red Sea, God parted it for them. But then they had to put their foot in. Sometimes we have to realize that you are responsible for what you're doing and waiting on God is an excuse because his grace is with you already and all you have to do is choose right. Well, I was completely woken up one day with this thinking uh, there's this essay from an English psychologist so a guy in England he deals with a lot of the lower class in England he writes essays about what he sees about the lower class his essay called The Knife Went In Changed My Life Forever The Knife Went In is an essay about how criminals he talks to all have the same way of talking man I know it's not fair i in jail I don't know what happened in that fight the knife just went in One thing led to another, you know, things that I got out of control, the knife went in. That's the premise of his essay. And I'm reading that, I'm thinking, Lord, I have been using this excuse for a long time. I don't know why I'm doing the things I'm doing or why I'm the way I am. It just is. I'm working on it, but I'm not really. I'm just waiting for God. So, couple that with the idea of God giving us dominion over creation, that teaching we had in Genesis, and that Paul is a- dittoing that by saying, The Holy Spirit is in you. I began to realize I have a responsibility right now to make choices. It's not up to waiting for this big God to come intervene with his, with his irresistible grace to change me. I can right now make the choice, I will change. And my life was forever changed from that point. I mean, I matured rapidly after that point. I think I have to ask my wife and everyone else around me, but I definitely went on a better track. And so, in a way, what happened was, I was the you know the kid in the middle. Then I grew up and started studying. I'm like, I'm a Calvinist. And I'm like, nope, I'm a Arminius. And now I'm like, I don't really know what I am. I don't like labels because they're exclusive. And also, when we give each other labels, we don't actually listen to each other because we're only listening for the words that confirm the label we gave them. I don't like labels. That's right. I don't care if you're Calvinist or minis, I don't want to hear what you are. <laughs> I'm, I don't know where I'm either. I've, ten years now, I've been thinking about this. Like, what, what is it? Free will, not free will? So here's my, here's my final two thoughts on this one. Oh, I just told you one of them. <laughs> <laughs> don't be prejudiced against other Christians who have one of these labels Now, Calvary Chapel is famous for being against Calvinism I don't know if you know that, you probably already catch that vibe from other places um, don't be you may not like their doctrine, and that's fine be against that, but don't be against Calvinists okay, there are some really awesome people in that thinking in fact, they're so um influential, that in the 2000s, Time Magazine listed Neo-Calvinism, this is the newest wave of Calvinism, as one of the most influential movements of the early 2000s. They're dealing with secular everythings and they bring Calvinism into that. That's how influential they've been. When I was in my 20s, all the cool kids were like, yeah, Calvinism. It was powerful. It is powerful. It saves people. It gives people seeing a bigger God when they're looking at their problems as too big. But here's, this leads to the second thing. Here's what I've pondered now for you know, roughly 10 years about this. What if, huge what if. If you hate this, just leave it. It's just a what if. What if we're meant to go from one to the other? What if we're meant to sort of go between the two? And I think back on my life. When I was in my 20s, I needed that Calvinistic view of God. I needed that. I needed some passion instilled into me. I needed to see who God is and who I was giving my life to. But then there came a time for me to grow up. And I needed a different view of God in order to grow up. And you know, C.S. Lewis actually says something like this in the Screw Tape Letters. He says that God will, with his favorites, often withdraw his hand so that they could learn to walk on their own two feet. And sometimes maybe that big God has to turn into the free will because it's time to learn to walk. And maybe that's why I've gone through the patterns I have. Maybe it's meant to be that way. I don't know. But if you really don't care about any of those subjects, sit there and say, cool, I don't know. I'm just going to keep following Jesus because that's a good plan. Yes. That means you have free will, by the way. But <laughs> <laughs> If you're sitting there saying, I don't even know why I'm here. I somehow ended up here. You're probably a Calvinist. <laughs> All right, number five. <clears throat> love, love, love this question. It's a practical one. How do you not only speak to God as you pray, but then listen to him as well? Man, I love that question. You know why? This person gets prayer. If you're even asking, how do I stop talking in prayer, you're on to something. You're on to something. At the beginning stages of prayer, we talk, talk, talk to God. And we usually say amen when we run out of things to say. Because the silence is terrible. Like, God, don't think me as someone short of words with you. I mean, of course, I just got to go, you know, so amen. Like, how dare me be short on words before God Almighty, you know? Um, Actually, though, you know you're growing in prayer when the silence becomes the golden points of prayer. Now, notice that the disciples come to Jesus, and they don't ask him what to pray. They ask him how to pray. Prayer is not about my words. Yet we start that way. And we're told prayer is not about you, it's about God. And you would agree with that. But as you make request after request, Lord heal them, help me, I need money, and this problem, that problem, it's actually becoming more about you. And often that's what prayer is. It's all about us. Now, we need to express those needs. But we also need to get to the place where prayer is about God. So how do we get to listening to God? Listening is keeping him at the center. Here's how it works. Real simple. Listening to God in prayer is about a wholehearted focus on being present to His presence. Let me say that again. It's a wholehearted focus on being present to His presence. Now, His presence is already there when you go pray, it was already there before you prayed. You don't work up His presence, you don't get it to come with your magic words or with your act of prayer. It's there. What needs to happen is we need to become present to it. And what do I mean by we becoming present to it? I mean that we are often not very present. The hardest place in the world to be is right here, right now. And even in the last five minutes, 98% of you were thinking about something outside of this room. At least... Five times tonight, altogether at least. You've probably missed ten whole minutes at a time because you were thinking about somebody else or, man, I wish I didn't have that extra helping of pot roast. Something is going on in your mind that's making you not present. And that's challenging. And when silence happens, when you stop talking in prayer and the silence happens, there is an entourage of unwelcome thoughts and distractions that come parading and banging into your head. And so we keep talking because it calms it down. (laughs) What we got to do is recognize we need space for silence with God to be present to his presence. And so we go there. We go to that silence. The thoughts come. That's normal. You're not broken. Please understand that. You're normal. But every time your mind drifts, you say his name or you say a verse. It's something you've chosen so that you don't have to think about it because you don't want to think you don't want to like stress yourself out. This is not a time to like make plans and to think through deep questions. This is just a time to be present to God. And so you say, God so loved the world. Whatever it is for you, the Lord is my shepherd. And that puts your focus back to being present in the presence of God. And you know what? It might be two seconds later, or if you're a superhero, it might be two minutes later. But the distraction will come back. And you have to do it again. And it can be entirely frustrating because you realize I'm the most unfocused person in the world. I never knew this about myself. But every time you're distracted, it presents a new opportunity to return to the presence of Jesus. That is an awesome thing. And as like all things, you get better in time. And just sitting there, nothing special happens. God rarely speaks audibly. We think, oh, he talked to everyone in the Bible. He only talked to Abraham like three or five times in his like a hundred and something years of existence. It's really not a lot. So you're not waiting for some At most revelation you're not waiting for god to speak audibly and knock you to your face sometimes it's rather dull and uneventful but you know what happens is it actually changes my outlook on life i realize i'm less reactive to everything during my day because i've learned to push distractions and temptations aside i've learned to be present to god to his presence and that goes with me in the day and so it's not only we're with Jesus and worshiping Him, but He's actually forming us to keep our thoughts captive. Praying in silence, listening to God is one of the best ways you can pray. Now it can be hard, so here's real quick. This is what I do in my prayer time in the morning. Again, I'm not a superhero. This is like four times a week, right? I told you I'm not that. You know, I'm not every day, but I'm, I'm try to be consistent. So this is what I do. I begin with formed prayer. Now, formed prayer is exactly what it sounds like. It's a prayer that's formed. It's preformed. I don't have to think about it. It's there. And I believe in formed prayer because um, sometimes we're too prone to pray what we want to pray when we need something other than our feelings to lead us. So form prayer helps me put myself to somewhere where I may not be. And it forms me in my thinking in my relationship with God. Now form prayer might sound to you a little liturgical or Catholic. Catholic, um, But actually it's used by many, many Christians. And the Catholics just happen to be really good at form prayer. And Calvary Chapel people happen to be really bad at it. <laughs> so just somewhere in the middle is really good. So I start with form prayer and it sounds like this. Oh Lord, let my soul rise up to meet you as the day rises to meet the sun. "'Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, "'as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. "'God for us, we call you Father. "'God alongside us, we call you Jesus. "'God within us, we call you Holy Spirit. "'You are the eternal mystery, "'who enables, enfolds, and enlivens all things, "'even us and even me.'" Notice the plural, too. It's good to pray in the plural. Remember, it's not just about you. "'Even us, even me. "'Every name falls short of your goodness and your greatness.'" You can only be known in what is, so give us such perfect seeing as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Then I pray Ephesians 1. God of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of glory, grant us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know. One, the hope of your calling two, the riches of your inheritance in us. And three, the immeasurable greatness of your power, which is at work among us. The very power you used to resurrect Jesus and elevate him high above all authority. I love that prayer because it reminds me, God, open my eyes to see that power is actually reality within your Christians. And then I pray Psalm five and this closes the form prayer. Uh, Psalm 5, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. Listen to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For unto you will I pray, my voice will you hear in the morning. O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto you and watch, which is the cue to listen. I direct my prayer to you. So I will take, now So, form prayer. Second, I'll have a moment of free prayer. Free prayer is where you just pray what's on your mind and heart. You just let it go. Shotgun, poo, it's spraying everywhere. A free prayer is, you just get all those things because I don't want them floating around in the back of my mind worried about so-and-so. Just pray for them right there. And make it quick. You know, it doesn't have to be lengthy. Like, God, if you hear me longer you'll like do it, right? Just get it out there. <laughs> so the free prayer is done and so then I'm watching. Like the psalm said, I make my request known to you and I watch or I wait or I listen. And so then I have that moment of silence where I I, and when I'm distracted I return to being present to God's presence I'll let this go as long as necessary and I usually know when it's about good because I feel open to the possibilities of God working through me in that day we usually start off very closed but gradually I open as I listen and when I feel like I'm there I feel like alright move to stage 4 so it's a form prayer free prayer listen stage 4 then I utter more uh, free prayer that might have surfaced in my distractions. you just put it aside. Then i like, okay, I'll pray for those. And then I close with form prayer again. See how it works? Form, free, listen, free, form. It's called a chiasm if you care. Um. <laughs> So I pray with, oh, it's going to take a while to read. If you don't know the St. Francis prayer, it's fantastic. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. You pray that one. I love that prayer because it also talks about not being passive, but being active. Let me not seek to be understood, but to understand, not to be loved, but to love. I love that because we always want to be understood and loved, but it reminds me every day. No, you be the one to go understand people. You be the one to go love people. And then I finish with, of course, our father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I love that one because it emphasizes the us aspect. Give us our daily bread. I have to remember, we all have needs. Forgive us our sins. I'm not the only sinner. As we forgive those who sin against us, I have to be forgiving if I want to be forgiven. It's so beautiful to remind yourself of that every day. Okay, that's long enough. Well, um, like. I didn't do too bad. I got through five. So the next two, if you want to see those, uh, they're in the pamphlet. They're printed over there. There's only 20, so fight for them. Um, The sixth question is, we are told on one hand that we can't get to heaven by works, but then we are admonished to live properly because we have to face God. Is this a contradiction or just an admonition to be obedient? In other words, faith or works? It's actually an interesting read. You should read it. Uh, question seven, I thought it was at least. How can God know me a speck on a tiny ball in a huge universe? Well, the worship team's going to come up and we're going to take communion. Um, So let me wrap this up while they come up. I want to ask you guys not to be so concerned about the cussing you hear around you as you are with your own negativity. It's so easy for us to condemn those that have potty mouths when you actually are quite a complainer yourself. Seriously. Let's work on not judging others' mouths and working on our own. I also want you guys to think about head coverings oh <laughs> well, you guys are pretty modest people um, no but I oh you know I didn't go into this because it was the next question never mind Then skip that one I want you guys to think about um, Calvinism Arminism. not in the way that hurts your head but in the way of thinking you know what God has everything taken care of so when I need that let it rest but to realize that he's also giving you grace and power right now to make decisions. So if you've been sitting on something, you've been like the whole, well, God hasn't done something yet. Wake up, man up, woman up, mature up, and do what you know you need to do. Preach like a Calvinist. Be confident and bold, but disciple and counsel like an Arminiist. We're helping people remember that they have choices to make. Um... Then read your Bibles. And I don't again I don't care how do it. Get every CD I've ever taught. Do the podcasting. listen to other people. That's one way. The Bible app, it's totally free. It's a great app because some of the Bibles they read to you. So if you're the kind of person that just wants to listen, listen, it's free. You know how much an audiobook costs? Especially a Bible. It's like fifty dollars. This is free. So use that. It's really cool. Or sit down and read it. But form the habit, it changes your life. And then pray, people. And I don't just mean the whole where it's about you, but pray so it's about the presence of God. Be present to his presence. I promise it's hard. You're going to try and you're like, Brandon's a fool. I don't know how successfully I've done it, but I've gotten teenagers to do it, so come on. Um, So with that, let's pray.